Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi everybody, this is Pat Ryan again with Childhood History and Critique, and this time I have a conversation with Ensgar Allen, lecturer in education at the University of Sheffield in the UK. Ensgar teaches in the uh, area of educational philosophy, history, and theory. He has recently published a book, Benign Violence, Education in and Beyond the Age of Reason, from Pelgrave Macmillan. Our conversation was recorded in December 2014. <clears throat> First, the conversation centers on Ensgar's influences. He talks about some of the t- stylistic choices that he made in Benign Violence, how it fits with the purpose of the project, and is informed by his understanding of critique. It is in then in- that we discuss the contents of the book in more detail, particularly the monitorial and the moral training schools of 19th century Britain. In this part, Ensgar outlines how his understanding of the project changed over time, and we discuss a few of the key distinctions upon which his argument rests. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So, Ensgar, thank you for... um for joining Childhood History and Critique. It's a pleasure to, to be able to speak with you after uh, reading an article and a, and a book uh, from you. I'd like, to, I'd like to start by giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit uh, about uh, your academic life or your intellectual journey, uh, the, the journey that brought you to write uh, Benign Violence. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. It's, it's really good to be talking to you. Uh, so thank you very much for that. I guess a big influence on me when I came to historical research, uh, looking into the histories of education, examination, and then eventually meritocracy, um, was that I was looking at it very much through the lens of, of Michel Foucault through his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, you know, I could make it very simple um, and just say that I guess I adopted a typically Foucauldian position, which is to say that the purpose of historical research is to make the present strange, um, which has become, I think, almost a cliche, the idea of making the present look strange through history. I've, I've read it a lot. Um, it's become quite a common idea. But I still think it's a worthy objective, as long as we really try genuinely to pursue it, as long as the researcher in question really tries to make a disturbance in the present. I, I think I've also been influenced increasingly by Nietzsche, Um, who rather famously, and amongst other things, wrote a genealogy or history of morals. Yes. Uh, He did this in the late 19th century, as you know, and when he was writing the idea that morality, especially Christian morality, could have a history and hence could be itself uh, a thing of the past one day, was obviously quite a scandalous thing uh, to suggest. Yes. I quite like that because we've got a model of scholarship here that 
sought to challenge precisely those things in his present uh, that he believed to be beyond question. And what I like about that book and his other work is that what he was doing is he was trying to invert things generally considered good so that they appeared bad or just a bit grubby. And he reconsidered things conventionally considered to be evil so that their merits could be acknowledged. And and he did that by telling their histories. And I guess in a similar way, um, I'm interested in disturbing how we think about education so that we're no longer so sure about what's good and what's bad in educational settings. Uh, Hence the title of the book, Benign Violence. It's deliberate. It situates side by side something harmless with something that's universally acknowledged to be bad. And I guess uh, the book is a provocation, and so is the title in that respect. Yes, you know, there's that the line beyond good and evil, yeah. and that can be read a lot of different ways. Mm. One way that I've, and I have similar influences uh, that you describe as your influences, and the one way that I've made sense of that important line has not been so much that there is no good and evil, but that whatever it is that I think I'm supposed to be doing as a scholar, it is beyond the assignment of good and evil. Now, I don't know if that speaks to you, that that somehow if it's simply assigning good and evil or taking the assignments of good and evil that I've been given and distributing them appropriately just isn't very interesting to me. Mm. And I think that's consistent with the notion that morality itself can has a, a historicity. Yeah. That it's not an essence or a transcendence. Or, it, or, or to put it another way, if there is an essence to good and evil, that we don't have immediate access to it, that we can't digest it as if we were eating an apple, that we're separated from that kind of knowledge of it. Does that speak to your project? Or is there any connection in what I'm saying to the way you think about these things? Uh, it does. Uh, I guess in, in two ways. Um, firstly, I think if you're trying to write like that, um, it means that you have to do a kind of critique, which means that you can no longer appeal to any kind of fixed categories. And that puts you in quite an awkward, but also quite an exciting position. You have to suspend certain kinds of judgments come to other uh, forms of critique. And I, I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy doing that very much. But I think that also, um, when you're trying to write beyond good and evil, um, or at least in a way that's not directly subservient to, uh, to things that are considered good and things that are considered evil, um, I think you also have to recognize that it's, it's kind of impossible as well. So I'm always yeah. interested by how um, educational goods are always haunting um, my ideas and they get in there when I don't quite notice. Um, so it's very hard to separate yourself from them and I think it's a long, long process and uh, perhaps one that's uh, ultimately impossible, I, I don't know. Those are really interesting questions and perhaps unanswerable but I do think they give the listeners a sense of where you're coming from in the broadest sense I'd like to turn your attention to your book and to just ask you in in an open-ended way to capture either a part or all of your, you know, your book's main argument or some aspect of your book's arguments. Okay. Um, 
Well, if you'll permit me, I'd like to give a slightly evasive response to that question, and, and I want to explain why. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd book, um, and to a certain extent, it resists summary. And I found the hardest part of the book to write, in a way, was the blurb, the little bit of text which appears on the back cover. Uh-huh. I really struggled with that. I did it right at the end, um, just before I sent the book in. And so the blurb claims, and this is what I settled on, that education is violent, and yet this violence is concealed by its good intentions. And according to that blurb, I, I, give it, I say that the book offers a history of good intentions in education, ranging from the birth of modern schooling and modern examination to the rise and fall of meritocracy. So I eventually managed to do that. Um, another way of me summarizing the book, I guess, would be just to look at the contents page. That would make my life easy, too. So I could say, OK, the book starts by telling a history of examination, of, uh, a history of schooling in the first part. Then it has a history of eugenics, statistics and intelligence testing in the second part. And then in the third part, you have a history of meritocracy and attempts to make uh, education more equitable. So I can give that kind of summary, too. Mm-hmm. So here, you know, there you have it. I can give you uh, I can tell you I can give you a list of some of the topics that the book covers. Um, but I still find it really difficult to give the book a summary argument. And each time it's a bit like the idea of an intellectual journey or intellectual life or what brought you to write this. Every time I'm asked this kind of question, I respond with something different, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is kind of frustrating sometimes. But specifically with with regard to the book, the reason for that is that I think that the book needs to be experienced. And that's how it's designed. So it doesn't really have a basic argument, I hope which can be boiled down and delivered in a blurb or in an abstract or summarised in a couple of hundred words, it's made up of a series of arguments and provocations that I hope will affect different people in different ways. Mm -hmm. So overall with this book, I guess I'm hoping that will be a kind of a purgative, I suppose, designed to release us from some of our more problematic educational commitments. Or if I put it more modestly, I'd say... I'd like the book to encourage its reader to radically question the educational enterprise itself and entertain a kind of radical doubt, if only for a moment, in which they consider the value of the whole enterprise, no longer hiding behind the idea that it must have its core something worth protecting. Or let me put it like this, and this is a bit devious. Um, You could say that the educational core, the good bit at the middle that we're all protecting or trying to protect, is already surrounded by lots of other people trying to protect it. They're these sort of educational critics. And what they're doing is they're trying to fight off our attackers. They're attempting to protect education from everything which undermines it, which reduces it to cynical imperatives and so on. But my devious suggestion to you, I guess, is that these defenders of education rarely look behind themselves. And I think if they did, they would see nothing but the rear ends of the other critics who are, like them, protecting education from attack. I guess what I'm suggesting is that at the core, there is little, uh, if nothing, left, perhaps. Um, That's a a provocation, I guess. Um, Another reason why I find it hard to summarise the book, again, is because of how it's written. So it's it's not a standard monograph. uh, It's not standard text. It's made up of lots of short sections, ranging from a sentence or two to a few paragraphs in length. And I guess together they develop an argument or a sequence of arguments 
Um, but they also give me a lot of freedom to jump about from topic to topic, which you wouldn't have with a, a more standard text. And I guess I write like that because I'm conscious of the fact that as academics, we're really heavily constrained by academic conventions, um, which we feel most acutely through that examiner, which is the peer reviewer. Um, and I guess in this book, I'm, I'm trying to escape that too. Well, this is one of the things that I mentioned to you earlier that is most striking about the book is that, and I'm having trouble uh, finding the words to describe it, but the one that comes, the phrase that comes to mind is there's a clear violation of some genre, genre conventions in the book itself. And having also read an article by you, it's not that you can't fit into the confines of the academic peer-reviewed article, but in the book you had a freedom that you were able to work out with the publishers and the editors to do various things. Some of it comes down to, it's very simple. You may have sections that are cut off from each other and they're self-enclosed and they may, the idea may be represented later with evidence going in a, a different direction. I found it refreshing. It's something that it, I think if you're willing to, to, to go with what you've written, there's a playfulness in it. It's something I, I, I must admit I enjoy. Um, so there's a certain amount of enjoyment and pleasure behind writing like that, and it's the sort of pleasure which I definitely don't get out of academic writing. Um, but it's always an attempt... Uh, to connect the argument to the style in which it's written. Um, and now, as I'm moving on to different topics beyond this book, um, my justifications for my stylistic choices change according to the content of the argument each time. So, again, I would give a different reason for, for the style. Um, I mean, one reason why the text is written so that it keeps on breaking um, is, and so that it doesn't develop a, a, a very linear, very uh, straightforward, very comfortable argument where I'm trying to get the reader just to follow everything that I think uh, and think along with me, mm-hmm. is that I really don't want that. So I don't want my reader necessarily um, to agree with what I'm saying. I want them to um, find it difficult and, and, and question it. And also I want them, through that style, to start questioning not just education, you know, stuff that's happening to other people, but themselves. Um, So, for example, with academic style, typically uh, it's very precise. The best sort of academic writing is extremely precise. You're under no doubt or, well, I mean, you can't get rid of interpretation, but the academic is doing everything they can to minimise the amount of interpretation that is necessary in order to decipher what they're saying. Uh, if they've got a statement or a critique, they will do everything they can to show you exactly what they mean, who they're talking about, when they're levelling their critique and so on. But sometimes I, you know, I, I can be precise if, if I want, but sometimes I like generalisations too. Mm-hmm. So if I, you can see that I'm attacking something in education, you're not quite sure where my attack is located. And so... Hopefully, you start to wonder, am I attacking you? <laughs> you wouldn't think that, necessarily, if I was giving you a more straightforward academic argument, because you'd either be able to say, oh, he's attacking me, I reject it, or you'd be able to say, oh, he's attacking them, 
and you either reject it or you feel like you're coming along with the author and, yeah, yeah, he's right, he's right, agree. And you become complicit with uh, the critique. You, you agree, you assent to it. I don't want that. And so I'm using different devices like that, I guess, to try and disturb the process of, of, of reading. So I want to redirect us back to uh, a part of your book uh, that I find fascinating and compelling and really important, and it centers on um, educational history in uh, England in the 19th century, moral training schools and uh, monitorial schools. They're both projects in, in that utilize elements of examination. One, that is, the, the moral training schools draws more on what Foucault called pastoral power, which some listeners might know in terms of the shepherd flock game. Yeah. And the monitorial schools, I think about Lancaster, I think have been studied more than the moral training schools. They're related, but they're also shaping the soul through um, things that are more recognizable in terms of what Foucault called modern disciplinary power. Yeah. You examine these two types of schools to talk about the shaping of the soul, which I would just add in my own, this is my own commentary, I'm not saying this is your argument, I think has been there in pedagogical discourse for thousands of years, the Uh shaping of the soul. I think it would be hard to have a pedagogical discourse that's not connected to that, and that's part of your understanding as I read it as well. I'm really interested in this way, in these two schools, like to hear you say a little bit more about them, and particularly how they're similar and how they're different, how they help us understand the relationship between power and knowledge and examination in schools, and why why people um, who are interested in these issues, you know, might want to pay more attention to these two historical examples of schooling. Well, I guess when I first approached the problem of examination, I felt as someone who's been examined a lot, like most people my age and younger, is that I, I wanted, what I wanted to do basically was write a critique, a devastating critique of its most oppressive aspects. You know, this was my yes. uh, high ideal when I started out. But as I got further on with that, um, I came to realize that by doing that and by focusing so intently on its most oppressive worst parts, I was missing a lot out. And that what I was doing was falling into a really common trap, which I see again and again, which is to assume that the most mechanistic, most instrumental uh, types of examination and education more broadly are always necessarily the worst. And we just need to get rid of them. Yeah. So this is a trap because it generates a kind of blind spot which allows a lot to go unnoticed or at least unquestioned. So this is why I turned to these two early threads of examination back in the 19th century, which you mentioned, And it was an attempt to disturb this basic assumption that mechanistic forms of examination are simply bad and humane interpersonal forms of examination are largely good. Can I interject right there without trying to interrupt your flow of thought? Do you, this strikes me as one of the most common misreadings of Discipline and Punish, Foucault's probably most well-read books, is people will read that and say, he's after mechanisms of oppression and part of the whole point of his project was to suggest that 
it's not the mailed fist, but it's the velvet glove, which is far more effective in shaping the soul and is a more powerful mechanism of exercising power and subjectivity. Is that part of what you're trying to draw on? I, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, so when I use Foucault to talk about what I would call here, broadly speaking, the more mechanistic science of examination, within that, um, to understand Foucault, you need to sort of realize that he's talking about um, the production of people where, um, where yes, you're right, the sort of the, the glove is, is better than the, um, I don't know, the cane or whatever. Um, or worse. Or worse. <laughs> yeah. But um, I guess that kind of what could be called a misreading of discipline and punish is, I can understand it, because I think Foucault was at a point where he was developing his analysis of power and he was making more and more emphasis of its productivity, its positive um, influence on things, and that it wasn't always something which inflicts and which takes away. Mm-hmm. So I think that change in his analysis of power is happening in the background of discipline and punish, which means that you can get two different, very different readings out of that book if you look at it closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, and he, he makes comments in interviews about that. He says, you know, look, back in the uh, his history of madness, he was really seeing power as quite an oppressive thing, whereas now in his history of sexuality, it's, he's, he's looking at it very differently. Um, so I think there are sort of quite complex things going on in the history of, of his personal development, which make discipline punish tricky to read sometimes. Okay. Um, yeah. But I've kind of broken your flow, uh, flow of thought about the significance of the contrast between moral training schools and monitorial schools. Well, yeah, no, I'm glad you did, because what I'm doing there is I'm creating, and I can only give now in this sort of uh, conversation a very short, clipped version of the argument in the book. So I would be contrasting a monitorial to moral training schools as if they were um, very different, uh, and one was oppressive and the other one was productive, and it wasn't quite like that. So I'm quite glad you made that uh, interruption, um, because I think that's important to clarify that both the monitorial school and the moral training school were were mixed. They had a lot of different things going on in them. Uh, And so it's it's important not just to completely contrast them as as two radically different um, systems of power. But having said that, some degree of contrast is nevertheless useful in terms of relating back to the problem, which is that we always think that mechanistic things are are the worst in education. Um, So there, there are these two types of school. They existed before state schooling in England and in many other countries, and that's why they are quite significant historically. And they were exported globally and were eventually combined and transformed so that they formed the modern classroom as we know it today. So mm-hmm. the modern classroom really is a, a very peculiar mixture of techniques taken from these two broad types of schooling along with a whole lot of other stuff as well. So that's why they're interesting in their own right. Yeah. So a monitorial school, well, very briefly, that was in many respects like a, a great machine or factory, um, sometimes called factory schools, and they were designed to be as an efficient and orderly as possible requiring the least exertion of effort on behalf of the school teacher. So they already, you can see there, that you have a system of power which isn't um, 
you know, a thousand pupils or 300 pupils in this school, they're not all working at the same time because if they didn't, they would get immediately uh, disciplined in the severest way. The idea here is that you could have a school which would run itself, and that's because of the way in which um, power is organized in that school. So it's not, although it sounds mechanistic, draconian, in principle, and this was the great hope of the people who designed these schools, they hoped that they could almost work without the necessity of having a, a, a school teacher there at all in the first place. Mm-hmm. So this is one model of schooling, and the way in which you can understand it is through reading Discipline and Punish and through thinking about the power of a certain kind of examination in that context. Quite a different type of school was the Moral Training School, which existed slightly later but ran in parallel with the Monitorial School. And this was a very intimate space, which was run interpersonally and particularly through the agency of the pastoral school teacher. And this teacher was expected to develop close confessional relationships with the pupils. Now, comparatively speaking, we've got a more humanistic school here, but it was still really highly moralistic, perhaps more so, and a more constraining environment in a way than the the, uh, monitorial school give you an example of this. When you leave the front door of the monitorial school, you go straight onto the street. These were typically interior spaces. They had no grounds. Mm-hmm. Whereas the moral training school, if you left the front door, you would go into the school grounds and you would have a playground. And this was their innovation in a way. Because in the playground, you have children who go outside. They have a break from lessons. But play isn't just to give them some kind of release for its own sake. Play was deliberately encouraged because it would give them a certain degree of free expression so that the school teacher, who could watch from a distance, could observe the children very closely in their natural state and then use these observations to develop moral lessons which would be addressed back inside the school building. So I think... We have a a model of schooling here which is just as disturbing, if not more so, than the monitorial school, and it makes use of a very different kind of examination, a more friendly, interpersonal kind of examination. Now, we've got two models here. They don't translate directly to the present. I think it's a mistake to read things in the present as being simply disciplinary, for example, because it's a, a 19th century configuration. There have been numerous changes to both of them. But I still think by telling this history and by experiencing it, we can start to question the common assumption, which I started out with myself, that overbearing top-down examinations are bad and bottom-up, more humane, interpersonal, classroom-based assessments are good. One of the the ideas or arguments that I gathered from your book is captured in the line, um, the logic of examination constitutes modern schooling as part of its ontological condition, or as the logic of examination can't be separated from schooling. And it seems to me that this is a position that allows you to trouble um, reform agendas or reformers who might think that they can save schools um, from the problems of power in education if they simply alter the methods of examination, bringing in the most extreme examples would be portfolios and 
performances rather than, let's say, uh, multiple choice standardized testing. It seems to me that part of what your what your work is implying is that um, it won't be so easy to do that. No. How would you respond to, let's say, reformers who will say, I agree with what part of your you're saying mm. in terms of there being underlying power knowledge connection between schooling as a project and examination, but that it is better to have a form of examination which is not high-stakes multiple-choice multiple testing because students experience it as alienating, more alienating than they would if, let's say, they were giving portfolios or performances or other alternatives, more holistic or child-centered forms of, of uh, evaluation. The problem with responding to reformers in their own terms is that you're forced into addressing the needs as they're presently defined. Um, but I think that there is also room for another kind of thinking, which um, doesn't respond so uh, quickly to present day problems, but spend some time investigating how those problems uh, were created in the first place, how the needs which we're being asked to answer or to address were produced, what are their histories, could those needs be problematic, even dangerous perhaps. Um, so that's, I, I guess, why I, I say I don't write for reformers, although I'd be really pleased if, if they did read my book, <laughs> because I think it would, um, I think it has a role to play in the, in the process, in the overall process. Um, but also, I think that we can't just solve our problems by just carving out bits of education that we don't like. Um, so I don't think that you can just take bad kinds of examination away in a way that allows good types, types of examination to fill their place. Um, in part, this is because, as I've suggested, I think that what is good in education could be, on closer inspection, far more ambiguous. So these more humane kinds of examination that you mentioned could be equally problematic, if not more so. So I guess what I'm calling for, again, is a kind of perpetual vigilance um, and an acknowledgement that there are no easy or quick solutions and a real suspicion of um, solutions that, that appear to, to solve our problems quickly. Um, surely our problems are much more complicated than that. But there's another reason why you can't simply get rid of examination or the bits that you don't like. And this is because examination basically constitutes us. So we're made up of its procedures and ways of thinking. It's got a logic which is already well embedded within us. Um, it takes different forms, it has different roles throughout history, but it's made us what we are. We've internalized it. And I guess what the book's trying to do is to show you know, how deep examination runs. So if you take a little bit of it away, it might still be there in a way that you don't necessarily recognize. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. And it, it sort of leads into a, another question, and, uh, and this is um, kind of a follow-up question drawn out of the article that you published in the American Educational Research Journal, but this is where you acknowledge uh, that there's a phrase is the examined life in that article, and yeah. you acknowledge that you sort of de deliberately um, conflate the examined life, that phrase resonates with, you know, Socratic thought, um, with 
examination in the mechanistic sense, the sort of modern sense of examination. But I I guess I want to ask in terms of historical ontology. Foucault uses the word historical ontology. It's picked up by Ian Hacking and others. But the idea that pedagogy produces states of existence is ancient. That's an ancient argument. And, And one of the most important early or, or I should say oldest arguments we have that is the argument between Plato and his student Aristotle about the kind of soul that will be created depending on what you include in proper pedagogy. Um, you know, what should be allowed, what should be fostered, and, and ultimately how you're going to shape a republic or a, a society around, around uh, uh, that effort. Plato is saying there should only be a culture of disputation. We should just get rid of, you know, separate, you know, anything, anything that gets in the way of that, separate that out. Um, and Aristotle wants to include a broader definition uh, in terms of creating the right soul. That's a complicated argument, and I'm sub- covering a lot of ground. But I, I say that because I think there's this, there's a really a long history of having this discussion around pedagogy, what is an examined life, the production of a soul. When you conflate something like Socratic dialogue as a way to engage in producing an examined life and therefore a certain kind of soul with, let's say, multiple choice testing and disciplinary technologies uh, of hierarchical examination and normalizing judgment, are those the same kinds of souls? And if they're different souls, or if they're, they're, they're ontologically quite different, isn't there something at stake in making that distinction? Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. And I just want you, I, I don't know, that's not much of a question. <laughs> Maybe you could just respond to what I've kind of lifted up. Well, I, I suppose in a, a very short response would be to say that I think that they are conflated in practice. Um, so I'm not sure whether uh, how useful a separation would be, a conceptual separation. I think it would be more interesting to see um, how they are wrapped around each other in practice. Um, I mean, I, I, I say, I think it's quite early in the book that I deliberately conflate the, the examined life and the high-minded Socratic sense um, with this more lowly kind of, as you say, multiple choice, basic. Absolutely uh, you do. And so the question is, should we? For the purposes of uh, unsettling ourselves, perhaps we should, because it is very easy to criticize multiple choice examinations mm-hmm. whilst mm-hmm. remaining quite comfortable with the kind of life to which we typically aspire in universities, which is... Uh, you know, could, would trace itself back perhaps to that statement which Socrates makes. So you have a kind of critique which issues from the university but leaves the academic feeling very secure. Whereas really um, examination has always typically um, emanated from these sorts of institutions. They are producing the multiple choice exam- uh, tests um, or they, they have done uh, historically, 
um, just as much as they're producing this high ideal of the examined life. I think that's quite interesting that they're doing both of those things. I, I, I wouldn't want to let them off the hook. Yeah, well, I, I do think it's interesting as well. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not it's also useful, and here I, I know I'm contradicting or providing a contrary point of view. I also think there's a value to aspire toward the form of the essay, the Socratic dialogue, and these things are related, and to spurn as much as I can the pressure that I am under to, to apply things like multiple choice testing. And these are real, these are real pressures. If they put 130 kids in my class, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a hell of an incentive for me not to have them write too much. Absolutely. And I think that battling against that is worthwhile and what allows me to sort of negotiate that, I know this is highly personalized, is thinking that I am somehow connected to what is a project in constructing the soul. You know, as Foucault said, the prison of the body, right? So I'm engaged in that power, uh, that, uh, that exercise of power. But it's an exercise of power that I, I subscribe to, to a certain extent. And I'm not willing to subscribe to all of the other mechanisms. Does, does that make? No, I mean, I, I sympathize with that, with that to the extent that, um, I think it would be foolhardy to hope for some sort of liberation from either of those two extremes. And so it really is a question of thinking, well, what kind of prison do I want to live within? Yeah. And, and if you prefer the sort of the Socratic prison, then, then fair enough. Um, I would, you know, definitely given the, the choice, if, if it was a stark choice like that, but, you know, I would choose it definitely. Um, but I still think that in the university context, it generates a sort of conceit about higher education, about its purpose, about its value, um, which isn't helpful and which can operate as a kind of a block um, to critical understanding and thinking critically about our context. If we just see this as a fight to get rid of the worst kinds of instrumentalism, um, I'm not sure that that still pushes us into a very productive alternative. And so I want to be equally suspicious of the academic essay. Um, and which you do in the book, which the book is. Which the book is. Yeah, definitely. Um, and to create, not have that as a, as, a, as a sort of a point of comfort. And so there are other conversations you can have uh, and ways of writing that you can do and that students can do, um, which is far more uncomfortable. Um, and it's, that, that really interests me. About, I'm, I'm interested in the possibilities of that, that kind of teaching and that kind of writing, perhaps, which acknowledges that um, education might be uh, really, really problematic. It might be something that we can't save um, but we still have to inhabit it. And so what are we, how are we going to do that in a way that's interesting and productive without insisting on uh, giving ourselves a, a long and venerable history of a certain kind of thought, a certain kind of academic production, um, which prevents us from thinking critically? Well, this has been a, um, 
a lot of fun for me, and I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, record this conversation, and to, uh, I, I hope others get get some enjoyment out of it. It's it, and it's been it's been great to to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you too. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcast. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. S-H-C-Y dot org.